Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Return on India is the latest release in the Colossus family of podcasts. For full transcripts and more supporting materials, make sure to check out joincolossus.com. There you will find the full library of content from Colossus shows like Invest Like the Best, Business Breakdowns, Web3 Breakdowns, Founders, 50X, and now Return on India. If you'd like to stay up to date on all announcements for Return on India and other Colossus shows, make sure to sign up for the weekly newsletter again on joincolossus.com. Now on to the show. Welcome to Return on India, a deep dive series covering one of the most populous and promising economies in the world. Through conversations with central figures in Indian business, Return on India will unpack the details that matter for investors and operators. We will examine the unique cultural dynamics behind emerging demographic trends, and we will drill into key sectors by talking to the business leaders driving change. We plan to investigate the past, present, and future as we explore India's investment case. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. My guest today is Kunal Shah, founder and CEO of CRED. When you think of India as a society, the motivations and psychology of consumers and how they interact with brands is fundamentally different than Western societies. There's a different philosophical value attributed to collectivism versus individualism. Trust finds itself aggregating in large entities, and institutions and the Indian society often functions in spite of itself versus with the same efficiency and structure in the West. But understanding these elements is critical to understanding what types of businesses succeed in India. And in today's episode, Vinal and I unpacked each of these philosophical elements, amongst others, and applied them to different topics in Indian markets. Namely, why is the consumption class aggregated in approximately 1% of the population? Why has credit been historically underutilized in India? And what are the characteristics needed to build a platform company for next-generation India? Please enjoy my conversation with Kunal Shah. Welcome, Kunal. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Kunal, there's a lot of different places we can start. We're, of course, going to cover the financial services landscape in India today and what you're building at Cred. But I also want to spend time on your unique perspective on the psychology and culture of India. I think that'll really help us better understand how to think about investing in the country. A concept we're all familiar with is Maslow's hierarchy, but you have an insight which I find unique. You've previously said that Maslow's hierarchy of Asian society is completely different than Western society. What does that mean? Most Western societies are individualistic and not something that they clearly understand what collectivist societies are all about. You want to belong in a tribe, uh, 
we often make joke about what this arranged marriage culture is. It comes from this thing of not having an individualistic culture to basically get the families married versus the individuals who choose their uh, partners. And I think that defines a lot about how our society grows because what happens is that we choose things that makes us belong in a society and grow our status in the society, which is very different than the self-actualization direction that the regular Maslow points to, which suits the Western culture. The Asian culture is very, very different. And therefore, the motivation. For example, how do you explain weddings where 7,000 people show up, which is a very common phenomenon for most Westerners? It sounds like an absurd concept to have a audience bigger than most music events you would have in the U.S., being in a society, belonging in a society, joint families, very few nuclear families. India is also the market where largest amount of remittance comes back from U.S. and other markets. So people are so deeply connected to their families, they send a lot of money back to their families and taking care of them. So it's a very different cultural fabric. And I think that's one thing that shapes our motivation, shapes our outcomes, shapes our consumption patterns dramatically differently than what most Western cultures don't understand. Let's think about one interesting concept is value of time. It's very, very different. Most Indians have never been paid an hourly salary ever in their entire life. And therefore, optimization for productivity, we never had industrial revolution also kick in. So what happens is that the core concept of productivity is a very strong concept in the Western world never kicks in. And therefore, we often make joke about what is called the Indian standard time, which is never really precise. It is constantly about accommodating and flexibility. So I think these are what makes the society quite unique and where do we spend our money, where do I spend our time is very, very different than what the Western world would do. Let's dig into that a little bit more. There's a diametric opposition to how Eastern and Western societies function, especially around time. Western societies are highly rigorous, efficiency, structure. It's why you have a lot of companies that focus on selling those same concepts to their consumers. Eastern societies, exactly as you alluded to, are in some sense the opposite. That ties very deeply to how products ultimately monetize in India, what types of products get built in India. Maybe you can expand on that concept a little bit more because I think there's a nuance there that most Western investors actually miss. Productivity softwares or tools or apps don't do as well in India. You don't see any SMEs and the local SaaS market to be big. The idea of I'm going to be more productive, I'm going to invest in some software and make things more efficient is alien to most people. I think it's slowly coming in, but it's not as rampant and as evidently sought after as the Western market is. But in terms of products that we buy for status is interesting. For example, I met a founder who runs a very large publicly listed luggage business. They build suitcases and they wanted me to join their board and I met them. Obviously, I don't want to join the board, but I can be very happy to give you some thoughts on what I think. We should focus on airports and railway stations and do brand promotions. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Majority or 80-90% of all the suitcases are sold for Indian weddings, not for travel. And that just blows your mind because you think about luggage is equal to travel because you've lived in a world where that is what it means. But most Indians buy luggage or suitcases when the daughter is going to move to the house of the new family and they want the new suitcase to carry her stuff. That's just a very fascinating thing to understand how the products are sold in this country and what drives that. Other things are like, for example, India, I would say religious travel would be probably equal or bigger than the regular leisure travel. People would travel for religious purposes. And I think that's an interesting thing that you cannot 
predict that it can be a big market by itself. And therefore, a lot of Western companies don't think about these concepts to be built. A lot of times, unusual ideas win because the motivations of consumers over here are very, very different on what they will really pay for. Another example is to think about weddings. It's very common knowledge that most people sometimes spend 10 times their annual income or 20 times their annual income on one day of a wedding. And I think building for that kind of a market, which is saving every penny, but splurging on emotional events, emotional events defined as weddings, education of children and healthcare issues are the three big events where Indians have a, almost a floodgate approach while they are saving money consistently. They will save every dollar through coupons. But when it comes to education, weddings, and healthcare issues, they're like all in. Interesting phenomena that drives the consumption of the country, which is different than a lot of Western society. Unpack that a little bit more. We pick into those three, education, healthcare, etc. Just help us understand a little bit more what is the underlying motivation for why, on one hand, Indians save every dollar. That's very much so a trend in America. It's the highest per capita minority group in the country. And then on the other hand, spending on items like weddings, you hear that concept and you think, wait a minute, that's a luxury consumer good. That's the opposite of fiscal responsibility, et cetera. So help tie those two together. I think the reason we are that way, it's about the importance of family as a unit and what do you really spend money for? I remember seeing this movie, Badai, which was an Indian small town story. And this particular family member goes to a wedding of another family member and asks them, like, you have done this amazing wedding setup. This is email statement that Kamate kiske liye hai. Means what else do I earn for? So the thing for them, just making a grand event for their daughter's wedding or giving them a lot of gifts when they are going to a new family or spending for their children's education and counting to saving time because a lot of them don't save time. And you must have seen that in your family. And why would you go all the way for that to save $5 on that thing? And it just baffles many people. But for them, collecting that through time and splurging that on big events, which will give them status within their own family, is an important thing. And healthcare and education are more of the emotional expenses. So I think it's a more about, we often joke as this is a penny-wise, pound-foolish behavior, but for them, these are very important events. And it's justified through social proof that we can spend on these, but everything else we have to save on because we were not gifted with this wealth. And when families get wealth over here, this culture of discipline of kind of saving money on small things and just splurging on big things is a big thing. And therefore, time value of money as a concept is hard to imagine. If you ask most people that what's your hourly salary, they have no idea. And therefore, they can't take good decisions with their time. For example, you tell them, hey, you see your salary is 20,000 rupees an hour, but you're spending an hour trying to save 2,000 rupees on your flight tickets. How does it make sense? They would spend an hour happily to just save 2,000 rupees on their flight tickets and looking for a deal and finding that. It is rooted in what do they think is an important and justified expense. And Everything else is a wastage of money and you have to really protect in every dollar. And I think they, they truly enjoy the aspect of saving dollars here and there. But they would spend on products that gives them status. I often observe that Indians disproportionately have a higher gross margin on products that are in their living room than they have, let's say, in their bedroom because it is about collectivist society. And the West, I see the gross margin of the products of their bathrooms would be dramatically more. And you will rarely see 
any fancy products in any of the let's say restrooms or bathrooms of India because it's not that important. It's about for others. So living for others is a very important concept, which is against the Western culture about about me and my freedom and my joy being prioritized. And I think maybe it would be helpful, especially for those in the West, to understand the idea of why gross margin in collective spaces is higher than gross margin in individual spaces like bathrooms or bedrooms. So the classical Indian custom when a family comes over or so is to serve tea, is to serve food, et cetera, is to spend time in a collective space. Maybe you can expand on that just a little bit more. It's funny. There was a startup which focuses on interior design of houses in India. And during COVID, they observed a very interesting phenomena. People were just renovating their living rooms and not any other room of their house. And it was a fascinating concept because it's all about entertaining people at COVID and letting them come home and having the time with them. But it was a fascinating concept because that's where the gross margins are. People want to really deck up their living rooms. And then you see that in Indian families in the US, their living rooms are grand. They do spend a lot of money and effort to make that special, not so much for the bedrooms. And I think this concept probably comes from gross margin by itself is deeply correlated to what causes status or hope for status. U.S. education, U.S. healthcare are all deeply high gross margin businesses because they're deeply correlated to about increasing or potentially decrease of status protection. Either of these things are important in high gross margin in nature. Utility products by design likely to have low gross margin because in my view, there is usually a CFO in your brain and a CMO in your brain and the CFO is constantly trying to optimize costs on products that drive utility. We are very happy to find cheaper options to do that. And in India, that CFO function is quite active. The CMO function is quite emotional and therefore spending money on just getting that really expensive dress for the wedding is an okay expense or doing this ultra luxury wedding is an okay expense. And the gross margin, therefore, disproportionately in that thing. I often make this joke that the only real large scale use case of drones in India is wedding photography. I have not seen other use cases yet. I love that. I like the gross margin analogy a lot too, or the framework of thinking, because this other framework, which I think ties to that quite well, which is this idea that standardizing is the enemy of soulfulness. It's a nuanced perspective, and I want you to expand on that because I think that actually correlates pretty strongly to products that have strong Dao Mao in India versus ones that actually create Arbu. So Everybody knows and understands India is a massive Dow factory, Mao factory, et cetera. But oftentimes the thinking stops there, which is Dow and Mao correlates to ARPU itself. Your framework on standardizing and soulfulness, I think, ties to that in a pretty elegant and qualitative way. So maybe you can help us understand that analogy, but also expand it by talking about what is the misconception that typically most folks make when looking at India and just thinking about Dow and Mao as the metric and not tying it ultimately to something like ARPU. I think in a society which values time, time spent is a good indicator to predict where ARPUs are going to be. And therefore, it's a very simple framework in the Western market that you can say, hey, Dow, Mao or time spent is a good correlation to predict where are they likely to also spend their money. In India, ARPUs of a private bank would be dramatically more than a social media company serving the exact same customer, where the customer is spending 40x or 50x the time on those apps. And I think that's where it becomes interesting that India's ARPUs are deeply concentrated on what their core motivations are. And therefore, they may be infrequent in nature, 
because the consumption of the country is not very big. India is not a big consuming nation. We barely consume. All our ARPU gets concentrated in assets that can be potentially long-term. So education or health or buying real estate or gold and all of these are, I don't know if you know it, but India is the largest, India, 16 to 18% of world's gold is held by Indian retail consumers. It's in trillions of dollars potentially. It's the second largest imported item after oil, gold. That tells you where the country's mindset is in terms of holding long-term assets and building on top of that. And therefore, when I talk about that scale is against the concept of soulfulness, it comes from, I think everything that is efficient is not likely to be soulful. Think about all the vacations and going to countries that are super efficient. Do you really feel the soul? Do you feel soulful? Or you go to this inefficient country where it's very, very soulful. Look at every meal that is made in an inefficient way. It's likely to be more soulful than any meal that is made in an efficient way. And therefore, there's an interesting dynamic within our religion also. Like if you look at a lot of the Western religions or any religions that are scaled, organized religions that are scaled are very practical. There are one God, one book, 10 rules. Let's go. We can scale this. But if you look at the common religions of India, you cannot point at one God, one book, one rule, 10 rules, 100 rules, interpretations of what those rules mean. And therefore, it's harder to scale. And I think that's what defines a society. It's a, it's a very resilient society because of that. Because when you have not rigidly defined what is something supposed to be, it's less likely to get disrupted. You can't destroy that God. You can't destroy that book. You can't destroy those rules. You can just evolve. Almost like a product that keeps sustaining. That is what defines a society to be different and unique. And funny enough, contentment is a very important concept in India consistently. Prosperity seems to be amongst a very small community which were supposed to be business families by caste. That community worships the wealth, God, and money and chases that. But most of the communities have not necessarily a good relationship with money. They do want to become wealthy, but it's not something that they obsess over. For them, respect is a very important concept. So I think that makes the country unique from when you talk about that where the Arpus are going to be. Arpus are going to be in what do they really care about. And therefore, it's fascinating. You will see that somebody who sells product on a super infrequent event, which is a wedding, seems to have very large businesses and doing quite well for themselves. If understanding the collective, understanding soulfulness, kind of understanding the concept of time value, etc., are the types of motivations to understand Indian society, I think another one that merits being highlighted is understanding how trust functions in the society. Help us understand what the trust quotient looks like in India. How would you rank it compared to the West? What do you think drives the role of trust in Indian society? It gets scalable when there are institutions that ensure trust in a very, very stringent manner. For example, if you had a bad situation in terms of customer experience or a bad fall in a cafe or whatever, you can actually sue people and potentially get some money for that and all of that. And you think about even that is being a, a just way of dealing with things. And and it's impossible to imagine something like this in India because the number of pending legal cases in India is probably going to take 20, 30 years to just finish that. So nobody thinks about, oh, I'm going to go to the court and resolve that and settle the dispute and all of that. So I think what happens is 
trust therefore becomes either hyper local or super concentrated let me explain what i mean by hyper local you trust your family and you trust your extended family and very close family bonds which a lot of people forget that the original concept of marriages was to create trust between non-trusting parties so a king would get their daughter married to another king and king's son and then there suddenly these two people and you can understand this when you watch game of thrones you understand how two big kingdoms find peace amongst themselves so trust can be hacked through this building these and therefore you see marriages in the community being very tight and and very few people marry people outside their caste or community so i think the key aspect of the concentrated version is that few brands or few things just unlock the highest amount of trust for example 15 people in bollywood probably control 80% of all revenue companies like tatas or reliance and all that just keep launching 25 different services and people just trust them and therefore i believe that super apps as a concept naturally works in low trust societies much more than high trust societies and therefore for most western society it makes sense no makes sense i can use this app for this and use that and suddenly it'll be like one app does this 25 things in indonesia or 10 things in india how does this make sense because for them just trusting that brand for more things is more natural trust is either scaled through institutions or through some of these biological extensions or you could create interesting brand related stuff which creates more concentration in this it's funny a lot of people laugh about nepotism as a concept in india in bollywood and to me it's just the extension of the trust i rather watch the movie of the celebrity's son or daughter versus this new actor who's come and gonna put my 10 dollars and try to risk my time and money with this guy who i don't think i know very well so familiarity plays a huge role in low trust markets concentration of trust is interesting to frame it that way in india because it pretty much works in the opposite in the us google meta etc have lower trust precisely because of their size and influence as opposed to concentration of trust and familiarity we harp a lot on companies focusing on a very specific core value proposition whereas in the east there's a different philosophy in place because of trust aggregation so you mentioned super apps in the us we often talk about the concept of super apps but it's really a concept that we see in practice in non-western markets and one thing that us investors certainly get tripped up on also especially looking at companies in emerging markets or non-western markets is this idea of going horizontal versus going vertical interesting thing that happens is they use the word so what will you focus on the wrong wish to have for an asian company to ask them to focus explain that unpack why focus is a curse for asian companies first of all there is no depth in any market for you to focus and win big india is a market that is big on overall number but on per capita basis is not very big so focus by itself you cannot just say oh i'm going to focus on offering this one single product and service i'm going to build a very large billion dollar profit company and what will happen but aggregation of customers and then selling multiple things to them could be very powerful and therefore uh, lack of focus is an interesting thing because you can actually cross sell easily if your brand is well known and trusted to deliver one thing well so i'm not saying that you should launch a company as a super app a lot of people think that super apps is like launching a marvel movie where all the superheroes come in the first scene no they don't but it's like the marvel universe where you bring the one actor and then you bring another superhero and then you make an avengers out of it and all of that so that's where where a lot of these things evolve in my view there is an opportunity to create concentration in that matter and it's happening already to the world for example 
now with content on your mobile or your home and internet streaming services going to a movie theater requires you to have the grandiosity of a movie that i would not want to watch on my phone or on my home screen and therefore you will see that the budgets and it's more easy to imagine avatar 1 2 3 4 5 6 the bahubali or rrrs and all of these grand movies versus these nice cute love stories that used to be quite big at one point in time so i think you will see that concentration creating these unique phenomena in many many different dimensions and the concentration sits at the entity level certainly it sits at a philosophical underpinning for how do you build a valuable business it also sits at the customer or the consumption level in one of our earlier episodes we talked a little bit about india and segmenting it really not as one country but not going to the extreme of 26 different countries but at least four major segments india 1a india 1 india 2 india 3 to at least unpack a little bit more about the heterogeneity of consumption that occurs in the country. Consumption is highly concentrated in India, which I think most people don't realize for a headline stat of 1 and 1/2 billion people. Maybe explain that concept just a little bit more. It ties back again to this concept of where's the Dow Mall, but where's the true ARPU? In India, per capita income is not well distributed. I will just hide many things over here. For example, we often talk about we are two thousand dollars per capita income country, but if you remove the top thirty million people, the per capita income would probably drop to six hundred to eight hundred dollars. And I think the direct correlation of these thirty million people is the people who can really communicate in English and actually are highly skilled. And therefore, their consumption—I would say seventy, eighty percent of all discretionary spends. in india is done by these 30 million people or their families second thing is that india has a very low female participation of labor which is what most western societies don't understand at all i think maybe only 6 7 countries who have poorer female participation of labor in the world compared to india as per recent stats less than 6 or 7% of urban female population has independent financial income of their own whereas this was 1995% in china before they took off in a big prosperous way so expecting india to become the next china is not a very smart thinking to do india is going to have its own different territory 92 to 95% of all financial products including credit cards home loans car loans investments are only done by men it's a extremely male centric society and it's not going to change culturally so easily so i think that's another lens to apply to how will the arpu get even more concentrated in a few people 50% sometimes on female fashion portals in india have men shopping for their significant others it's an interesting concept india is probably one of the only countries i know that where the fashion spends of men is more than women usually in other markets women is 5x or 7x of men this is largely because of no financial independence for women to have their own choices and i think therefore the arpu or the revenue concentration of india a as we call it is very very acute and therefore you will see banks of two types focus on 30 million customers focus on 500 million customers and suddenly the arpu and market caps are exactly in the opposite direction largely because of their focus on these customers who tend to have my guesstimate would be that 80% of all retail deposits in form of bank balance or fixed deposits or whatever would be maybe 50 million customers it's very very concentrated at the high level all these facts make sense and help us understand your vantage point our focus on building for india 1a let's tie I want to go a little bit more deeply into financial services specifically and some of the nuances and pieces maybe let's just start with a very 
simple baseline of what CRED is building and why focus on India 1A. And then we can go a little bit more deeply, I think, into the nuances on financial services and how they really operate in the country. I think the easy way to understand this is if you look at YouTube, Facebook, any of the large platforms, revenue, Amazon, any of these guys in India, while they may have millions and hundreds of millions of customers, their ARPU is very low. My guess is YouTube ARPU in India would be in the two or two and a half dollars per user per year revenue number. But if you remove the 30 million consumers from that mix, the ARPU would drop to maybe 20, 30, 40 cents. That tells you that while these are big headline numbers to get large valuation multiples in the global market to say, oh, I have 4 billion active users largely contributed to a Dow Mao factory markets like India, the ARPUs are super concentrated in a very small set of consumers. And I think that's not going to change for a while because per capita income has a strong role in terms of every downstream metrics on ad dollars to consumption dollars to every other metric for that matter. So it's an interesting direction and dimension through which many of these markets of credit focuses on the same 25, 30 million consumers. And that came largely after building a company feature that was focused on mass customers and it was extremely hard to cross sell or monetize that. And because when you go for the mass market, they A, don't value time. B, they do not have the per capita income to really consume. And uh, females are not actively purchasing, which means the higher gross margin products may not be present. That's an interesting phenomenon in consumption. My guess is that females or children actually have a much higher gross margin purchase tendencies than what men would do. Men are more utilitarian in their mindset when they're buying things. And therefore, businesses around that will naturally have constraints. And you probably see that behavior in Indians who are living abroad as well, including the US. Oh, let's get another house and third house and fourth house and rent it out and let me pay for this one mortgage and take care of that through rent and all of that is exactly the same behavior in India. So for most of Indian families, their ARPUs will be significantly concentrated in financial services, even in the US, exactly the same behavior in India. Now, obviously, that makes them very well positioned to grow their per capita income because when you focus on financial services versus consumption, you are not dealing with crazy debt, crazy credit card debt, all of that stuff. But we focused on more affluent customers because our insight was very simple. In India, most apps were built for India and suddenly you are building for this imaginary middle layer which doesn't exist. The apps don't make sense to people who are from the bottom of the pyramid or the top of the pyramid and you're somewhere in the middle. So if you just focus on the top end, can you build a much higher quality product was the insight behind building what we are doing. And I think that's allowed us to build a product that can cross-sell. We have a commerce angle to it, payments angle to it, credit angle to it, and we're able to cross-sell more things naturally because we are focusing on a customer cohort that is selected to serve that. So Cred is a simple platform that started with simple insight that if you pay your credit card bills on Cred, you get rewards. And in India, less than 25, 30 million customers have a credit card. And it is largely the more affluent segment, which consumes a lot more than other segments of consumers. And if you can just get that through them, we can cross-sell more things to them. Financial service is one thing, consumption is another thing. So that's what Cred is sort of like a gated community for the more premium customers and just serving more of their needs versus trying to become everything for everybody in this country, which is very, very hard to fulfill and, and deliver on. Let's drill under credit a little bit more. You just mentioned kind of historically 25 to 30 million credit cards or so. 
why has the use of credit in India historically been so low? It's especially interesting, I think, if you juxtapose public market cap composition in India, which is half of the public market cap in India is banking and financial services. And so those two seemingly don't make sense. Why has the use of credit been so low historically? Society that usually saves disproportionately more than borrows for the future consumption. So it's culturally still very, very high savings rate as a culture. But a sub-segment of customers do take a lot of home loans, do take a lot of personal loans, which are all unsecured and secured in nature. Credit card in particular have not taken off because now it is completely different. Now it's completely taken off since COVID the acceleration has been huge. Because in India, credit cards were largely given to consumers who could demonstrate stable income on record, which was not the case. So number of people who filed income taxes was a direct correlation to the number of credit cards we had in the country. Direct correlation in many ways. Leapfrog in many products like UPI, where you can use your bank account seamlessly in a QR and suddenly you don't need to have a credit card processing system and UPI is a free system. So suddenly the merchant acquiring was free. Consumer spends are free. Now, obviously, credit will make a big comeback because UPI will soon have credit and automatically you can use the QR to do these transactions. So I think we are going to see a very different behavior on credit and it will take off in a big way because a lot of India stacks came together. The first is the Aadhaar stack that made identity very easy. Then there is a UPI stack which made payment seamless and hundreds of millions of Indians are using that product now. We have our account aggregator framework where the information about your history comes in. Credit bureaus took off in the last decade or so. We have uh, now uh, data on GST which can be accessed through an API. I think those stacks just suddenly created this interesting ways to underwrite, which was historically not possible. Now, credit is done in so many interesting ways because of that, which is driving a cashless society with a lot of data seamlessness. And the reason I believe that this is going to be a crazy decade for India is a lot of these stacks are just kicking in now. How stacks are, like when a stack comes in, it's a tectonic shift to the society and it's going to take off in a big way. And I think just the flow of money and the speed of money that is moving around in this country is so different now. So credit is just going to be a natural byproduct because everybody now sees that the business can grow bigger, do more. Consumers are want to spending more. They want to travel. They want to see the world. All of this is going to kick in now and credit will play a big role. Earlier, credit was considered to be a little bit of a taboo culturally. Evaluation mechanisms were painful. Repayment mechanisms were painful. The shame associated with it under not paying all of that was very complex in our society. But now, with digital seamlessness and all that stuff, it just drives more and more consumption. And also, just respect for credit scores, respect for maintaining good credit history, all of that factors are now kicking in, which obviously makes a society really drive things. But the funny thing is, we still not have credit scores applied outside of the financial service industry. For example, in the US, it's very common for a landlord who's renting their house to somebody to ask for their credit report for their rent their house. In India, there is no such concept. Most people over here look at you and ask you, do your interview for 30 minutes, take a 10 months deposit sometimes for the lack of trust that they have in the system. So I think when some of these systems kick in, we'll see a very, very different dynamic kick in because of that. Most technology companies, when they become large companies, become platforms. They start out as building product one, maybe product two, et cetera, but they never really scale if they're limited to a subset of products, they have to build platforms. You have this concept you've talked about before, which is this idea that platforms are built on utility. 
I think that's particularly interesting to unpack for a Western audience when thinking about India and how it relates to credit. Because the way we think about building platforms in the US, I think fundamentally is different than the way that platforms actually can take off and scale in India. So maybe help us understand what you mean by platforms are built on utility. And then how does that drive the cred business model and your philosophy on how to effectively scale distribution and engagement? I think it's an interesting dimension to think about. First of all, Asian customer is not extremely rigorous in positioning you as I use this for this only. For example, TikTok in China is top commerce company and a top lending company as well. Consumer will almost sound like a sin. Like how can a short video platform that I spend my time on is also the place I take my loans from? And I also take purchase crowd products from. And it's just an absurd concept for most people to think about. But in Asian societies, you can start with a very basic utility like a short video platform and suddenly become a large lending platform. And I think that is unique to Asian societies because they do not hardwire you to that, okay, you only are for this. It becomes a place that you trust to do one thing and therefore you know Indian consumers do care a lot about, oh, who's the founder and who are the people behind it? And associating familiarity is a strong concept through which they're like, oh, they are these people, I can trust them to do this also and do this also. And I think that's what drives the behavior in a very, very unique way in Asian markets than it does in the Western market. It's now easy for Amazon and Shopify and all these large platforms to kind of say, okay, we're going to offer pay later and credit and all of that stuff. Or we'll also do Amazon video and all of that. But it's not in this first decade or 15 years that they would do that. Or Apple would not build original series. But in India, it's not uncommon to imagine a four-year-old startup which is already having a video platform and also a financial services arm in the company already. It's why we talked about this earlier, but it's why you have the Tatas, the Reliances, the such of the world right in these markets, because there is this aggregation of trust and familiarity and to say, okay, great, I can buy unrelated product B, C, and D from a company that sells one, two, and three, which is a very foreign way to think about business construction in the US. Another implication or outlook of the world, just based on what you're saying, is platforms that just offer utility really will be the ones that get disrupted or won't be able to sustain enduring value versus the ones that, let's say, offer utility for free, but then can monetize on top via financial services. We see this in the US with vertical SaaS products, in a sense, Every vertical SaaS product ultimately becomes a fintech company in the US because they ultimately layer on lending, credit, et cetera. The difference is in the US for those vertical SaaS players are also monetizing on SaaS. But I think that concept, how do you layer on financial services onto a platform is pretty interesting because in the US markets, you think of it in a paradigm of something like vertical SaaS, but in Indian markets, it really sounds like you think about layering financial services really onto just who aggregates distribution, engagement, and trust. It's about evolution of a society. Google does make a lot of things free and make money on ads. So it's already doing that. It's not hard to imagine that Google could double their output, they focus on lending. But the question is that, will they prioritize that all the thing? For example, Apple, to my view, is going to create maybe 2x the revenue on financial services and everything else that they've done so far, because they have the consumers and the data to do what they want to do on top of that. The success of Apple Pay or Apple Card may have its own turbulent ways to get there, but it will still be easier because their customer acquisition costs are close to nothing to make the payback periods or 
returns work very, very well for them. So my view is acquiring utility and cross-selling other things has been the oldest concept that exists. The earliest markets were around churches where you came for actually for the God and ended up buying some stuff for the house. So it's not uncommon. It's just that in India, you can actually offer a service for free and people will actually come because paying for a service with the value of time concept is not a thing that people would want to do. And therefore, it is okay and easier to get adoption through a free software versus trying to make money from SaaS because the value of time is what makes the US customers pay for a lot of the software that exists. Protection of intellectual property. In India, people will anyways pirate your software if you start charging for it because there is no legal system to penalize that. So a lot of the paying for things also emerges from the cost of penalties that you may have for being found to use somebody's IP for free. In India, I don't know anybody who would ever get even a police complaint for using a pirated version of a Microsoft Office or other things. So I think it's a society. You build different models based on the ways you can monetize. A lot of progress has been made in India with the India stack. You alluded to it. The RUPI, uh, Geo has contributed, obviously, to that. What are some of the key building blocks that are still missing from your perspective in India to get it over the hump? And you can juxtapose this, I think, with a different idea, which is I think most Western investors get really seduced by this idea of X for India. Let's build that same model in India. What often misses, though, in that analysis or in that perspective is a lot of the level up ground infrastructure, for example, that is taken for granted in the US or concepts like trust or whatever it might be, just don't exist in the country. All the motivation of consumers to pay for things. And the motivation of consumers to pay for things is totally different. And so a lot of the foundational actually has nothing to do with the idea itself that's successful or the business itself. Oftentimes, it has to do with the underpinnings of how the society operates. The India stack has advanced India significantly. What is still missing to get it over the hump? I think the physical infrastructure is massively behind right now for the kind of ambition we have to take off as a country. So I think that's going to be a big step that has to happen in the 10 years. We have to have a serious revamp to our infrastructure of our current cities, to our new cities. That's one. Two, I've always talked about the female parts of labor. It's going to be a big one to overcome culturally to get there. And that's where the per capita income and consumption economy will take off. The third thing is ensuring that we're able to take the dividend from the youth by constantly creating more opportunities, more entrepreneurship, more jobs, more of that. Other things are more around stability to regulation, stability to all of these things, and which I think we've done a phenomenal job in the last 10 years or so, but the next 10 years is going to be even more critical because now when you're building these tax, you also want to have a reliable uh, regulatory environment, taxation environment to drive some of these predictable outcomes for investors. The last one I would say is the founders and startups focusing a lot more on what will work for India versus what the world is doing. Not only investors and the founders also copy the same models, but I think it's changing a lot, but it could be much better. For example, if one studies the profit pools of India, which exists in the public market domain, or we can study that, you would fundamentally build a very, very different company and prioritize very, very different services. For example, we built unlimited grocery startup because the world was investing in them, whereas we more barely India consumes. If you ask most Indians to name more than two brands of cheese, they can't. It's Amul and what's the other one? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> But that's all. Because it's aggregation again. So a Patel store is a good indicator of what grocery means to India. 
in the US. That's exactly what we are. And not like the US store where you can have a wall filled with dairy products and 500 different types of ice creams to choose from. We are not that society. What elements or models do you look at from other countries, whether it's the West or other Eastern countries like China, et cetera, that you do actually believe work well in India? And that can be in financial services, it can be in startups, et cetera. I guess the byproduct of that or the implication is what should startups in India emulate versus building a native India version for? What works from the rest of the world in India? I would say products that work in the Asian context work well over here. So I think studying that or products that are built in low trust societies. So Maybe even looking at markets like Russia would be an interesting place to take ideas from. But unfortunately, the podcast and marketing material is built from the US and rarely anything from these markets. So there is no assimilation of that insights coming over there. So I think other countries do a terrible job of marketing themselves and their innovations. And like India, most people don't know why these companies have these crazy valuations or what do they do and what is UPI and all of these things are because we don't know how to market anything to the world. Marketing has not been our strong suit. And I think that's true for every Asian market. How many big Asian brands are consumed in the Western market? Very, very few. Because marketing is not our biggest strength. And I think that's where you have to go to these markets and spend time and study. For example, if one goes to Brazil and spends two weeks studying what working over there, you might find two great ideas that would work in India versus spending time in the US. As a final question... I want to round out actually in the opposite direction. We talked a lot in this conversation about the thesis of how the East and the West are different. I'm curious as you look ahead with the belief that this is India's decade and it's going to be a really interesting time to build in India. What are the types of products do you think that India will ultimately export to the rest of the world? Actually, I should expand that question from just products because an easy way to probably think about that for folks is areas where there's labor arbitrage or low cost, et cetera. Eastern economies have always exported products to the West. I'm speaking more so from the perspective, I think, of what you just alluded to, which is world-building ideas or world-building standards. I think it will largely be software extension. So we currently supply the people to build the software, which is what has created a lot of these IT companies to be big. But I think that will naturally extend to products that we might... So SaaS might be a big thing. But we will become great at building consumer products for the West market when we become good at building original ideas for Indian market. Because ability to build original products is ability to understand human motivation. And when we get good at that, the world will be a market open for us. Yeah, there's this framing, especially when it comes to education. that, And it's interesting, especially when you look at the Indian education system from the lens of our parents, for Indians like us that have grown up in the West, is excellent at nailing the test, but not really questioning what the test is asking. And I think that culturally speaks exactly to what you're saying. The scarier one would be, imagine creating a test. Can you create a test? <laughs> yeah. That's where you would absolutely not make it. I think when India can cross that chasm, it'll be particularly interesting. Kunal, this was awesome. I appreciate you spending the hour with me. We'll have to do a round two because I know there's a lot we didn't get to. But I, I really appreciate you spending the time and helping us understand in the West at the nuance level. Oftentimes we get caught up in the large headline numbers of India, but there's obviously a much deeper story to tell underneath. Absolutely. Happy to be here. And hopefully this should change some perspectives from both sides of the world and hopefully connect more opportunities. To keep learning about the topics discussed, head to joincolossus.com, where you'll find our curated list of resources, a transcript for this episode, and a library of conversations on investing and business. 
That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 